Welcome. You're listening to the Everlasting Business Podcast. I am your co-host, Greg Schoenberg, a leadership coach and financial executive with years of experience under my belt. And I'm Ari Mizell, a productivity coach passionate about optimizing work and life. Together, we're here to delve deep into the timeless principles that fortify businesses for the long haul. Each week, we take you on a thought-provoking journey. We explore the secrets behind the centuries-long success of iconic brands to the innovative strategies driving the business of the future. From understanding the power of stress inoculation and incentives to unmasking the challenges of the present day business world, we're here to provide valuable insights and practical tips. So whether you're an entrepreneur just starting out or an established executive, our conversations aim to inspire, educate, and lay the foundations for a prosperous future in business. So buckle up and join us on this exciting journey. And let's together uncover the lessons that make businesses truly everlasting. All right, we are recording and today we are going to talk about healthcare. Ari, I think this is one of our favorite topics and I know you have a bee in your bonnet or is it a bug in your bonnet or you have something in your bonnet. I don't even know why we even say bonnet. But I know you've got something to say about this, and specifically around Dr. GPT. So what prompted, pun intended, you to say to me, let's do one on Dr. GPT, sir? Well, first of all, it's good to be back in the recording studio Absolutely. here. So nice to see you in person. So... Oh, and also before that, I do just want to say thank you to, uh, we've gotten some great feedback on the episode so far. The podcast seems to be doing particularly well in Malta. Yes. Thank you to the Maltese people. We love the Maltese people. We're going to go to Malta at some point. You've heard it here. Uh, And uh, please keep the feedback coming and uh, take a moment to like us, subscribe, download, review, all the things that you do and wherever you listen to podcasts. And share, too. And share, absolutely. So... For some very small context, because hopefully some people already know about it, some people might not, but I had a a very sort of extensive journey with a chronic illness called Crohn's disease. It was my first major sort of foray into speaking. I did a TEDx talk on this, and Crohn's disease is an incurable illness, still considered to be an incurable illness, that uh, I have been free and clear of for well over a decade. No medicine, no pain, no symptoms. And people would, some people would still say that that just means I'm in remission. But I had a, a very rough experience, and I spent a couple of years being really, really, really sick with lots of medicine, lots of scary moments in the hospital, and fortunately was able to, able to overcome it. Now, this is not a uh, soapbox crying about the medical industry doing me wrong. It's not about that at all. There's a number of different facets here that are now being addressed with technology in a way that they weren't before. So... Again, for just a little bit more background, I had, in retrospect, I'd been having symptoms since I was 14. And because they were very sporadic, we never thought of it as a sort of chronic condition. It would just come up. I'd have stomach issues every six months or so. And it never became a really big issue until I was about 23. I'd been living a very unhealthy lifestyle, working in construction, very stressed. and Smoking, uh, I believe. And I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was eating a lot of fast food. I was not exercising. And again, under an enormous amount of stress. And uh, ended up in the hospital with what appeared to be appendicitis, but magically like went away at the end of the night. And they're like, oh, I guess it's not inflamed anymore. You should see a GI doctor. 
I saw a gastroenterologist, and uh, this is, I think, 2005, I want to say. Uh, maybe 2005. And I get a voicemail two days later from this uh, doctor, and the voicemail says, oh, you know, so-and-so, you, uh, you're diagnosed with Crohn's disease. You're going to have to start taking these eight medicines. Um, the prescriptions have been sent to your pharmacy. Like, let me know if you have any questions. There's a voicemail. And at that point, everybody, you know, this Dr. Google, right? So Google basically says, like, you're going to die, essentially, with Crohn's. Incurable illness uh, leads to surgeries, leads to cancer, leads to all these complications. And I'm, like, sitting there reading this, just, like, responding to this voicemail. Uh, so I fortunately was able to find a second doctor who did confirm the diagnosis but did it in a much better way and actually told me in person and we went through all sorts of plans and stuff and I did end up start taking a lot of medicine very quickly. Uh, I was able to get involved in the biohacking community and start experimenting on myself and part of that journey was creating my productivity system less doing but I was able to overcome the illness and I've replicated my results in many, many other people. So, there's essentially two kinds of medical issues that anybody might deal with, right? We have acute and chronic, basically, right? So, chronic can be Crohn's disease. Chronic could be diabetes. It could be an amputation from something that happened that would also be considered a chronic condition. Or maybe even something neurodegenerative like dementia, Alzheimer's, whatnot. And then acute, right? We've got a cold. We've got a trauma, a car accident, right? So those are the acute things. The way that those are handled often gets mismatched, in my opinion. And you have people treating chronic conditions as if they are acute conditions, meaning they often treat the symptoms. A lot of the medicines around Crohn's disease are there to treat the symptoms and not the underlying cause. And what happens is that when people don't make a lifestyle change to go along with that, the body beats the medicine at some point and it stops working. Now, that's so. All, what does all this have to do with ChatGPT? There was uh, a recent experiment done, and there have been a couple now since then, but essentially they wanted to see if ChatGPT as a chat bot could emulate or improve upon the empathy offered by or expected to be offered by a doctor. And what they found overwhelmingly was that ChatGPT outperformed real live doctors in terms of providing empathy. And they said there were 200 different representative questions, such as silly things like, I swallowed a toothpick and my friend said I'm going to die, to the truly terrifying, this is what I'm reading from the article, a miscarriage one day after a normal ultrasound. So they put all this into ChatGPT and they had different people evaluating answers and, and, do, and doing the chatting. And... ChatGPT came out well ahead of the human doctors on usefulness. Almost invariably, the chatbot answers were rated as three or four times as reliable as the ones from the we humans. So the question here, as we've started to discuss before, is not necessarily does ChatGPT replace a doctor. It's more about where does something like ChatGPT fit into the healthcare system, and then where do doctors that's a great question, and I'm glad you gave the context of your own um, history with, um, you know, overcoming Crohn's and dealing with the medical system. Um, what, you know, the way in which I, I sort of come at this is 
our medical system is broken beyond all recognition, notwithstanding the fact that there are many amazing doctors and nurses and care providers and scientists who work tirelessly each and every day to try to help people. So it is not the fault of the individuals. It is the systemic fault that, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, I would always gaze out upon the Brooklyn Bridge and I would say, you know, they're just putting bandages on this bridge. They're just fixing it. I wish they could, you know, properly overhaul it such that it could be, you know, a useful glory, beautiful, you know, glorified, beautiful bridge for the next hundred years. But the thing is, you can't take the Brooklyn Bridge out of commission for too long because too many people rely on it to get to and from Manhattan into Brooklyn. And in the same way, I think about the healthcare system has been one where we're just constantly putting quick fixes on the system because it's not like we can all take a year time out from needing health resources. And so when ChatGPT comes along and and starts being incorporated into patient care and replacing certain functions that doctors used to perform, I think to myself, great, this doesn't feel like just a little Band-Aid. This feels like, with trial and error and improvements over time, it has the real potential to improve health outcomes. And even though we don't like the idea of not having the human hand on the other end helping us, the reality is most doctors act like robots anyway, right? All they're doing is essentially spitting back what the software in their head tells them to spit back when a patient says X to them. So what really is the difference between a person doing it and an algorithm doing it? And then the answer is, well, somehow we feel like when a person is doing it, it means more, it's informed by something that is magical and empathetic and the person speaking to us really feels like they know and have context for the words that they're saying. But the reality is, I don't know what your experience has been. My experience has been that they just want to get rid of me as soon as they can. They've allocated 90 seconds for me, and after the 90 seconds is up, we have to go on to the next one. So in that context, they're not really doing anything for me better than a bot, except they are not going to have as much information at their disposal as the bot. Right, exactly. And and so this is interesting for me as, as an EMT also, right, is that we, it's a it's an endemic issue, or I guess a pervasive issue, that uh, the healthcare system, it, it, at least in America for sure, is is way overused, and there's just simply are not enough resources. Because a, I, I think that we lack a culture, and and I don't know if it's America, but we lack a culture of preventative care. That's that's the first one. People often wait till something is completely broken before they do something about it. And part of that, to their credit, to the people that do that, is that the system doesn't support them very well to do that. And you have people who don't have access to healthcare. Even where we are here in Princeton, there are people who are not making enough money to have healthcare, and they can't get Medicaid healthcare in our town. They have to go outside of our town to get it, and they don't have cars to do that. And it creates a whole. So then, obviously, they're going to wait until things get really, really, really bad. Right. Right. Um, in Trenton, where I worked as an EMT, a lot of people would rely on ambulances as their basically primary care provider, essentially. So the, the thing is, is oftentimes, and you know, just as I said, we can divide into two categories, right? Acute and chronic 
conditions. We also can say that a lot of times patients need one of two types of care, coaching or treatment, right? Somebody who is a diabetic probably needs a little bit of both. Somebody who is having a panic attack, maybe they need a little bit of both, but they probably need some coaching. Uh, And somebody who's broken a leg needs treatment. They don't need coaching. Now, me personally, if I was sick with something really serious, I... I want Dr. House. I don't care about bedside manner. They can call me every name in the book if they want, as long as they diagnose it correctly and treat it correctly. (laughs) That's my feeling, right? There are other people who would rather just sit and talk to somebody for an hour, you know, and answer all the ridiculous questions that they might have. And that's what will satisfy their needs. And a lot of times they can't get that. Yeah. And on the consequence side, me, what I want, I often can't get that either because a lot of people don't, there's a lot of, doctors that aren't necessarily the best diagnosticians. They might be really, really good at the thing that they do. Uh, and I'm not knocking, I mean, I have, I, I know many, many doctors and nurses and healthcare providers. Um, this is not knocking the profession overall. It's more of the the sort of condition of the industry with the system. Which they operate. The system, exactly. Yeah. And why are we talking about this on Everlasting Business, by the way? Because I'm looking at the medical system as essentially the business that has been operating for, you know, a hundred, a thousand well over a thousand I mean, years since the beginning of time we've tried to fix problems that people encounter in, right. in their health yeah exactly so now what they what so furthermore with this experiment they found that the answers that the that chat gpt was giving were rated as seven times more empathetic than the ones that the real human doctors were giving and it says in this article and there's actually links to another article that it's a low bar to compare yeah. empathy for to the human doctors, but regardless, seven times greater empathy, which in many cases resolves the issue for the patient, believe it or not. Because right, right? what they really needed more than a, a, a new script was some empathy. Yeah. yeah. And so I have, I'll, I'll give you an example. I This recently happened to me with a fellow EMT, a junior EMT who, who I know from working at the, the squad here. He called me out of the blue because he said he'd swallowed a pill. It was like an allergy pill, and it got stuck, and it was really worrying him, and he was like thinking he should go to the emergency room, and he was like freaking out. And I talked him through it, and I had him try a little couple different positions and drinking and things like that, and it went down. But that may sound trivial, but I promise you, there are people like that with much lesser issues that have called ambulances and went to the hospital and sat in a waiting room for three or four hours to see a doctor. And then they're pissed off and they're frustrated because they're not a priority. Right. They're not. Right. If you look, and that's, by the way, that's another thing too, is we look at a global sort of, or it, we look at it uh, globally in terms of a healthcare or an, even an EMS system. If I'm going to spend 20 minutes or an hour with a patient who's not having a major issue, but there's somebody else that really is and I can't go to them and there's not another resource available, you know, resource allocation wise, that creates a bigger problem too. It totally does. And, you know, getting back to your point about how, well, what are, what should doctors be doing anyway? We know we have a shortage of doctors. We have an acute shortage of nurses. And, Unless somehow magically the United States is going to ultimately train and graduate a few hundred thousand more medical doctors every year, we simply have no choice but to have technology do some of the jobs that it can do and have that free up time for doctors to do other things that only a human being can do. And there are certain things, absolutely, I I don't think we are anywhere near 
being able to say we're going to outsource uh, a particular type of surgery to a bot. We are going to outsource a very difficult medical decision as to a pathway of treatment to a bot. We are not going to do that. That is what doctors should be doing. Inputting for you know, pieces of data around symptoms and then spitting out what it probably means is not the highest and best use of our doctors and our nurses. And so even though you could easily see how people are going to demagogue this and resist it, it kind of feels to me like it's the future. Yes, absolutely. And you know what you're seeing, what we're seeing more and more of too, is that there are more and more sort of programs and degrees coming out yeah. For that, for medical care providers that are not a full MD, right? I I don't know, but I mean, I, I honestly I haven't been to a doctor in a long time, but uh, getting a PA degree, you know, physician assistant degree, yep, or a nurse practitioner, like those are just about as good as many doctors' degrees in terms of like if you go to one of them, they can prescribe medicine. They probably or, have more hands-on patient experience in some way or hospital management. Um, Certification. I forget the name of the degree, but there, you can get a degree in hospital management. Like, it's really, really important that the people running hospitals have very yeah. specific training for doing so. Yeah, and 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 the the uh, selling point for a medical degree now gets, I think, gets tougher and tougher because you go into a lot of debt. Like it, you know, you yeah. you don't end up making necessarily as much money as you might think you do. However. For those people that specialize, like the the great cardiothoracic surgeons of the world and the uh, great uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons, you know, that can get a football player back in action after breaking their knee, like that kind of stuff. Those are things that we're not going to replace anytime soon, nor should we. We shouldn't. I actually have a client who is a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, and um, he uh, has dedicated um, the next chapter of his career into uh, helping people on their longevity journey. And one of the things that you said that really resonated with me that I very much believe he would agree with is he is as much a coach as he is a doctor. He has ripped open many a body and performed surgery. But for someone with his experience at this juncture, his highest and best use is to help people in ways that a bot couldn't. A bot would uh, in no way prevent him from doing his job. And in fact, if I can get him to use it, a bot would probably help him. So for those doctors who have figured out their highest and best use and know that they can add value and perspective in ways that only somebody who's been through the trenches, so to speak, of, of being a surgeon or a doctor for many years, they should not be insecure about this at all. So in addition to people ultimately having to get over the hump. Medical professionals themselves will have to realize that this can be a force magnifier and enable them to do the kinds of things they want to do and do less of the kinds of low-value activities that they probably don't want to do anyway. Yeah, and I, I think that's really the crux of it, and that's the, that's the main point, right, is that this, is, this needs, it not only should be seen as like a tool that absolutely can be a force multiplier, but uh, it... it it has to like that's the only way that I think that there's going to be an ability to adapt to provide care to the people that need it the best. And if you are still, you know, listeners, if you're still not believing in in in, in this point of view that Ari and I are sharing, there is a book that changed my life in thinking about healthcare called Catastrophic Care, and it was written by a Hollywood executive, amazingly, by uh, the name of David Goldhill. Why everything we know about healthcare is wrong. 
I read this book and I have never stopped thinking about it. And one of the great metaphors Goldhill makes in the book is how healthcare is an island unto itself with its own economic forces and its own rules that just simply don't exist in any other industry in our country. And it is a fabulous book. And after reading that book, it changed my perspective on the need to try new and dramatic things to ultimately keep up with the nature of healthcare in this industry, which from a systems perspective is going in the wrong direction. So I would urge everybody to read that book and um, examine your own biases on this and think about why you might be resistant to the idea of having yourself prescribed by a algorithm, even if it happens to be a really smart algorithm. Excellent. Uh, another really great discussion. And again, I think that just looking at the medical industry as sort of that everlasting business means that uh, systemically it can make these changes and move forward. And I hope your remission is everlasting too, my friend. Thank you.